0: As I said in episode 900, my update about dropping this podcast back to one a week for a while for health reasons, I'm going to be sharing brand new episodes only on Mondays for a while. I'm going to use my usual Wednesday and Friday slots to reshare some excellent older episodes. What follows is one of those interviews.
1: No one is depending on you to follow a congressional impeachment hearing no one is depending on you to offer a hot take on Facebook. You can leave that and no one's going to miss it. You shouldn't be sad about that. It's just that the relationships we have online are not serious enough that anyone's really going to miss your hot takes. But if you are a member of a community that has goals and strategies, then people are depending on you. I think when you can fill your time with serving community, then you don't care about whatever the insane and mostly stupid news story is of the day.
0: Hello, this is The Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. Aton Hirsch has written an important and readable book about hobbyism in American politics called Politics is for Power. I hope that it will be read widely and do its part to change behavior among those of us who consume politics intensely, but don't work to build power. Aton has a very good career going as a political scientist, undergraduate work at Tufts and a Harvard PhD. He taught at Yale for six years, then returned to Tufts. Eitan studies civic participation and the relationship between election rules, strategies, and the behavior of voters. His previous book was called Hacking the Electorate and is also worth your attention. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Eitan Hirsch at Tufts University.
1: Hi, Aton. Hey.
0: How's your day today?
1: So far, so good.
0: That's good. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography?
1: Sure. My name is Eitan Hirsch. I'm an associate professor of political science at Tufts University, also affiliated with the Tisch College of Civic Life there. I'm a political scientist focused on a lot of things related to U.S. elections, mostly voting rights issues and uh, Civic political engagement.
0: Tufts is kind of a return for you, right?
1: Yeah, that's right. I got my undergrad degree at Tufts, and then did graduate work at first MIT and then at Harvard, and then I taught at Yale for six years, but commuted here from Boston. And uh, when our, our third kid came along, I was blessed with an offer <laughs> to not commute anymore, and so I uh, just a, a couple years ago moved back to to Tufts as a grown up. Although I would say my My schedule, which sometimes still involves going to the Tufts Gym and the Tufts Dining Hall, it doesn't look much different than it did when I was, you know, 19.
0: That sounds pretty comfortable. And I I assume that your relationship with the undergraduates is quite different. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So I wanted to talk to you because you have a book coming out, which I thought is an important one for this time, particularly for the types of people that. I'm interested in in a particularly important moment in our democracy. What's the title of the book that you've written?
1: So the title of the book is Politics is for Power, and the subtitle is How to Move Beyond Political Hobbyism, Take Action, and Make Real Change.
0: I think most people who study politics, you hear right away that it's about power, but there's a sense in which for, in your book, and I think in reality, <laughs> that a lot of people who think they're participating in politics right now are not exactly doing it they're sort of doing it as a hobby. What do you mean by that?
1: Yeah, so if you look at the ways that most people participate in politics, like if you look at Americans who are spending time actually thinking about politics, it would be hard to call what they're doing politics cuz they're they're not really in a, a power seeking mode. They're they're in a consumption mode. They're reading a lot of news, they're listening to podcasts, they are talking about politics on social media, they're sharing things. They are emotionally committed, like they're you know they feel partisan and political thoughts and feel feelings. But as I say in the book, they're really focused on kind of themselves, their own emotional needs and intellectual curiosities, and they do something really different than what I consider politics, which is basically collective action, getting power for the things you care about by working with others to affect change. As someone who Collects a thousand votes by convincing a thousand people to do what they want. That's politics, and actually, both in political science and in in the broader world of news junkies, I think most of the things that people think they're doing when they say they're doing politics is is not politics at all.
0: And that's kind of a terrible waste, isn't it? What what was the the sort of genesis of the idea for this book?
1: Basically, that it's a terrible waste. I mean, that we are at this moment of like really high, record high engagement in a certain way, like the national election studies always surveyed people since 1952 and asks them, you know, how interested are you in politics? 2016, more people than ever before said they're really interested in politics. But then you look at like the measures of, did you help a party? Did you help a campaign? Did you attend a meeting? Those are like below average historically. (laughs) And so we have, you know, for reasons that I get into the book, three real reasons that I point to we're at a moment of a lot of shallow engagement in politics, but really, really um, not a lot of deep engagement in politics. And I think for people who genuinely want political change or progress or who are genuinely fearful of the state of things right now, I hope that the book can show them the difference between what they're doing and what they like want to be doing.
0: I can imagine... A number of people, people I admire, possibly hearing this very defensively as a real critique of their behavior. How do you want people to hear a critique of political hobbyism?
1: Yeah, so I thought a lot about that question because this started with some op eds that I had written uh, in the Times and the Boston Globe, and you know they had obviously a negative take on political hobbyism and you know, that's a bummer to read. So I wanted to showcase the alternatives. And and that's why I think the book is a lot more optimistic than you might guess from my initial spiel here, because the book follows about seven organizers and tells their stories. And they're all very different people in different contexts, but they all think about politics in terms of getting power for the things that they care about. And I think that when the reluctant or defensive hobbyist hears their stories, they hopefully have some aha moment like, oh yeah, that is politics. I respect that, but I'm not doing that.
0: You mentioned seven activists that you follow. A lot of them are very local organizing precinct 206 or something like that. Tell me uh, one of those stories.
1: Well, that one that you mentioned is a story of a college student and a professor at Davidson College in Davidson, North Carolina. It's a great story because a lot of college Democratic groups, and this is true for college Republican groups, too, really don't do much off campus at all. These guys called the College Dems Group um, an insular pizza eating social club. And, you know, that's really just generally true of most places like this. I mean, even at Tufts, and I, I, you know, I love the students in the Tufts Democrats, but their big event every year is uh, West Wings and Wings, where they (laughs) wash West Wing and eat wings. That's like a typical college. Dems.
0: That's not building a lot of power. It's
1: not. And, you know, they don't have a lot of people interested in it because they don't have a very strong mission, really. And so this kid, Drew, at Davidson College, he looked around, he's like, I, we got to do more than that. And they have this precinct in Davidson, and he formally organized it as part of the county political party. And then he roped in other students and mainly one faculty member and And soon they grew this precinct committee, which was like basically a collaboration of students, a couple faculty, and then a lot of community members into this just astounding organization where they really think through like, what role can they have? So they've done things like there was a state rep who wasn't considered very viable. This is a very conservative area of Mecklenburg County, North Carolina. And they helped her fundraise just enough that the state party then threw in like, $600,000 for her race. Actually, since the book was written, this group did this amazing thing, which is they were able to get their student ID card from the school, like count as an ID for them. So they do fundraisers. They have a precinct and they had a precinct uh, event that one of us, I think a member of Congress or state senator called the Woodstock of Precinct organizing. They had seven hundred people at a precinct event. I mean, as you probably know, like across the whole country, you find a precinct that can bring seven hundred people together uh, for an event, and it's it's very rare. And so that's just a story of you know, a group that could have been just another college gems group, basically, but it became a partnership between students and faculty and community members. And of course, they had to overcome challenges and tensions of, you know, why are students engaged in, a, in the town politics? And, you know, what is the role of a democratic committee? They had to overcome a bunch of challenges, but mostly by like putting in a lot of time and having a vision for something more than they were doing and a desire to be really strategic. They showed how like a college student group can actually do a lot off campus.
0: And they elected someone to the Christy Clark. That's that right. right. Yeah,
1: this is the person she I mean, she was she was, a you know, a great candidate. And, and this is a very conservative area, the state party was ignoring her because that candidacy was not really like contestable in the previous election. And so they helped her with a lot of canvassing and with these fundraisers, which then made her seem to be a viable candidate to the state party, which that's what's triggered in this big investment. Yeah, and she won by a few hundred votes in a place that like that didn't seem possible before, you know, before 2018.
0: What's your favorite of the seven stories of the activists that you track?
1: I have two. So one of them is The Ukrainian Boss. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, maybe I should ask you what your favorite is. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I like them all. So tell me about The Ukrainian Boss.
1: Okay. So the backstory is I kind of, for years, have been looking for cool organizer stories. And, and this real insider and boss is like, oh, there's some... Ukrainian boss you should talk to in Brighton, which is a neighborhood of Boston. And and the first couple things I read about him, I was like, it made me nervous to talk to him. I, I learned that he like controlled a thousand votes. I didn't even know what that meant. <laughs> and I also learned that like he had been under investigation by the US attorneys for, you know, like election fraud or something like that. But then like the story is actually nothing like that. Okay. Because the real story is that this guy, who's now 98, I've met with him twice now in person, and I've met with his, you know, I've talked to his family and to, to some of his his supporters. Here's a story. He's a Holocaust survivor. He came from Ukraine, and he got involved in politics just because he was in this community of old, retired Jews from the former USSR. In the 90s, there was a, a bill that Congress, the welfare bill that Congress passed and President Clinton signed that was going to make it hard for people even legal immigrants to get benefits. And so this freaked a lot of people out in these communities who were relying on food stamps and disability benefits this guy, Nah, he, he, first of all, did a lot of like advocacy, but he and his wife also just like helped 300 people pass a citizenship test because they were afraid that they would lose benefits otherwise. So they practiced answering the questions they drove them. And he and his wife are basically just like really nice people. And they they drive people to doctor's appointments and they've driven people to you know, help them with English and filling out forms. And around the year 2000, He started converting this into a political process, which is essentially that he and his, um, he calls them lieutenants, they like, you know, fill out a sample ballot and they pass it around to their thousand person old age home. And they say, don't forget to vote. And here's the people we should vote for. And then they stand there in the lobby of the building and make sure everyone votes. And, and basically, that's the whole story. He's like a really nice guy who's earned the respect of his neighbors. And so his precinct has like two or three times the voting rates of any precinct around it. And they all basically vote the same way. And so if you're on the other side of his organization, you don't like it. And so at some point, someone asked the U.S. attorney, to investigate it. But there's, you, you just quickly learn that his power is built on like basically decades of doing really nice things for his community and building trust.
0: It's it's kind of like the complaint that we heard recently out of was it Kentucky about someone harvesting votes in the urban areas, the Democrats. It's probably a result of that kind of long term organizing too, that that doesn't feel right on the other side.
1: That's right, and I really like the story. And as you you know you read in the book, I, the, that story kind of weaves throughout the book because when you first hear about it, I think Democrats especially would say, oh, that's the kind of dirty machine politics I don't like. You have both this feeling of like, is that the way politics should be? You know, who, who are these a thousand people that this man is influencing? And why aren't they voting like for themselves? And at the same time, you see, oh, they're voting that way because they're putting their trust into a community organizer who is helping them serve their interests. And we should laud that.
0: Yeah. What's the second story that's on your favorite? list.
1: So the second story that's on my favorite list is Angela, who's, I really kind of identify with her. She's my age. She has two little kids and she lives in um, this very conservative rural area of Pennsylvania, Westmoreland County. She, in some of a similar way to Nock, nah, actually, is just like a really wonderful, generous person who has built up this organization in a, in a really not democratic friendly place. This is the kind of place where, you know, you get someone to Canvas and they might come with a Kevlar vest because they're so afraid of talking to their neighbors about politics. Angela and a committee built up this organization called The Voice of Westmoreland and they do both political and nonpartisan policy advocacy. She has an amazing backstory. She was diagnosed with MS and well, she got politically involved because of her feelings of the importance of providing healthcare for people. But The story speaks to me because, you know, the group is mostly pretty liberal, but they're operating in a conservative area and they are really practiced at having the kind of organization that someone who's conservative, even someone who might've voted for Trump in 2016, but doesn't feel great about it, that they feel a place that that's welcome and that they have a very wide range of views within their community and they build community by being really kind people. They take care of each other. And the, the book actually opens with a story of I actually went down there and I, I was um, watching them operate basically. And, and this guy sits at the table where I was sitting who was a Trump voter. And he honestly didn't look a lot like the other people in the room who were predominantly all liberals. And he said to this group at this liberal organization, like, yeah, um, you know, I'm pro life. I, um, I, uh, I'm an evangelical Christian, and you know this group welcomed him because he felt he that that his community of evangelical Christians was going down a path of racism that was brought on by Trump, and he rejected that. And you know now, because this group led by Angela is so welcoming, this guy who you know, never voted a Democrat in his life is out canvassing for <laughs> state and local Democrats. And I think the kind of empathy that Angela brings to politics that actually a lot of these local organizers bring to politics is like really something to, to learn from.
0: It is. And there seems to be this enormous disparity between the politics practiced on the cable networks and social media and not in person and the politics of ordinary people or organizers locally.
1: That's right. I mean, across the board. We all know this that, like, if you actually want to get someone to do something that you want them to do, you kind of have to be nice to them (laughs) and have a generous spirit and be really empathetic to their needs. And that's the only way to move people in your direction. And so, of course, we know that. But when we do politics online or when we see politics as practiced on TV, we, you know, have this horrible. Infatuation with conflict and fighting, and we find it more fun to be engaged in a politics of of anger or or outrage. And so we look at politics. If you looked at politics on social media or on cable news, you would say, "Oh, it's like about people fighting each other." And of course, there's like real conflict in real politics. I, I don't want to diminish that, but there's also a generosity of spirit that has to come with, power building that I think we don't hear enough about.
0: So w- why exactly is is hobbyist politics a problem?
1: Okay, so <laughs> I think there are three reasons hobbyism is a problem, right? One is the one we're just talking about, which is that it just cultivates the wrong skill set. If the way that you are doing politics is through provocation and outrage, like that is not just not politics, it hinders politics. It makes it harder to do the things we really need to do, which is like empathize in a way with people that they're going to give us their votes. So that's thing one. Thing two is there's an argument in the book that it incentivizes politicians to behave badly. And by badly, I mean like against their own interests and the interests of the people that they're representing. When we have a form of politics that like we're looking for the instant gratification we get from they responding to us or reacting to us, we might be screwing things up. You know, and there's a lot of examples of this. There's the one we have a lot of data on, which is that politicians figured out pretty quickly what gets them a lot of donations online, right? Which is being provocative. I sometimes go to groups and say, you know, who's the best person at uh, raising small dollar donations? And, you know, in the audiences that I often present at, you know, they say, oh, Bernie Sanders. No, no, it's not, It's it's Trump, right? Trump is the best at raising small dollar donations. He raised more in these donations than Clinton and Sanders combined last cycle because he is provocative and outrageous. And by us playing into a politics where we're gonna like click on some link and donate every time there's some viral video of a politician behaving badly, then like, guess what? They're gonna behave like that. And they're gonna turn every congressional hearing into an opportunity for them to get a viral video. And, and there are other examples in the book, uh, a somewhat controversial example involving the, the Gorsuch and Kavanaugh hearings that I get into. So that's the second thing, that we, we incentivize them to behave badly. And then the third thing is that this is just an insane waste of time. There is this claim that the defensive hobbyist will make, which is that this kind of online mostly or just kind of argumentative or consumption behavior is a gateway into real organizing as opposed to a replacement for it. And I try to evaluate that claim and I land pretty squarely on the the fact that for almost everybody, hobbyism online political consumption is not a gateway into organizing. It's a replacement for it. It's people who are spending two hours a day on this stuff, like do not have another two hours a day to be in the real political world. And I see that as a problem.
0: And you also see hobbyists not evenly distributed in the population. How do they sort out in gender and race and age and so on?
1: Yeah, so they are mostly college-educated white people and predominantly male. <laughs> <laughs> so certainly predominantly male relative to like people actually engaged in organizational engagement. Obviously, on the left, if you went to any kind of you know indivisible or political organizing group uh, in the country, you'd mostly see an environment that's roughly sixty-six percent women. But you know, in the world of online consumption, arguing on Twitter, or if you know, go to an audience of pod Save America Live, you're going to see mostly white men. There's a section of the book about why this is a, a white phenomenon more than uh, among minorities, but it's mostly a college-educated phenomenon. So that's who's doing this.
0: It seems to be somewhat a problem of privilege of not really needing the power to get a change that will really make a difference in your life.
1: That's right. In the towards the end of the book, when I talk about some of the stories of the Latino and African American organizers, I think it becomes really clear that the reason college-educated white people can spend two hours a day on political consumption, as opposed to like getting involved in the organization, is because they they don't need more power than they already have. Which for some people is like a hard message to receive. But if you're pretty comfortable and the stakes for you are low, even though. You know, you would say the stakes are really high. You would say this is the most important election ever. But if you're spending your political and civic time, like, on social media clicking things, like, you don't mean it.
0: I think a lot of people are going to take that painfully, but it's, uh, I think, probably true. You talk quite a bit about this intersection that you've kind of alluded to with your organizers between politics and service, the kind of meshing that happens, and that it seems like a really good route to be politically successful is to be of help in a community. Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: I kind of think there's a common theme running through the organizer's stories of service. And sometimes that service means something like really basic, which is like basically being nice to someone and taking them seriously and looking them into an eye. The kind of deep canvassing conversations, which I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with, where when you go talk to a voter and you want to convince them to something, you focus on listening and being empathetic to their point of view. But then you also see a lot of organizers do like actual good deeds for their community or for the people they're trying to interact with. Like that group in Westmoreland County in the government shutdown, when some people who work for the government were really not making ends meet, you know, handing out, gas cards and diapers, like Nach and his wife in Boston, you know, were driving their community around filling out forms that they can't fill out in English. And this kind of harkens back to a form of politics that people kind of the middle class educated people don't like, which is basically that the way to convince a lot of people to support you and you support your views is not to like argue with them about the details of Medicare for all versus this or that plan. It's to like be nice to them so that when you come to their house, they'll say, Oh, you're a nice person. I'll vote for who you want me to vote for. And so, yeah, maybe one of the more controversial parts of the book is a recommendation that parties and campaigns embrace doing direct forms of service, whether it's um, organizing elder care and babysitting services, organizing for you know mental health clinics, opioid clinics. I think there's a lot of service that the political party should be engaged in that would be a lot more effective and important than 100 million dollars on Facebook ads.
0: Obviously, organizing political organizing takes place in formal party organizations and outside of them. You know, you've mentioned Indivisible, there's also all kinds of different well-funded and not well-funded organizing groups that are focused on race or ethnicity or locality, where do you think it should be or is most effective? Or what's your take on sort of the way we have it organized on the progressive side right now?
1: Yeah, I don't I don't think there's one right approach. I mean, obviously, the groups that I studied, some are part of the formal Democratic Party, some are independent, some are like the the Russians in Brighton sometimes support Republican candidates. This can operate in both plays. I think that the parties could play a much stronger role than they play now. I mean, I don't want anyone to hear that story about the college students, that college Democratic groups are insular pizza-eating social clubs, and think, oh, like the kids these days. Because, you know, the grown-ups are even worse. I mean, if you look at county or town Democratic Party committees you can't get a much better description than pizza eating social clubs for the most part. They are lethargic. They don't have much money. Yeah. They don't have a mission. And I think that service can be part of that mission so that they have a role to play in the world of building their brand. And you build your brand not by having a a pizza social and not by going to a state convention once every two or four years, but by like being out there in the community and, you know, having a purpose in the world.
0: I got the sense that there's an aspect of this book, which was a self-critique and that you as a very Harvard PhD in politics was not that active yourself. And you did detail your own efforts to organize your own area. Tell me about that.
1: Yeah. So I would say two things. Like one is that I've read a lot of books by organizers for organizers, I would say. This is definitely not in that, that book, because I don't come from the world of organizers. I definitely come from the world of hobbyists. Like I, I think I could write this book because I really understand the hobbyists. <laughs> they're, they're, they're I've been sitting here thinking,
0: Oh my God, interviewing people in a podcast about this is definitely a hobby.
1: <laughs> you know, hopefully, hopefully, you know, it can, it can leverage some people into actual <laughs> engagement. That's the goal. Right. But um, I guess, so yeah, I come from the world of hobbyism for sure. And, And that that in part means, like, sometimes I've looked at forms of organizing with real distaste. I think it took me to writing this book to actually, like, understand protest movements. I, like, am not the kind of person that would see themselves in a protest. Like, like I I would look at a protest and be like, ugh, that's really not for me. And I've become, I think, a, a more understanding of when protests have real strategies and goals to them. And sometimes they don't. You know, sometimes they're just kind of cathartic exercises, and and probably the right response is, I don't want to do that. But sometimes they really are meaningful and strategic, and you know, the book kind of helps articulate when one and one the other. But definitely, this book comes from the place of like, I guess, personal identity with the hobbyists, and then but realizing like that's not a good place to be. The second thing is, yeah, I do in the book tell a little bit about my own personal experience with political organizing, and. I do that for a particular reason, which is that I found that it was a good vehicle for me to be able to explain to the reader that I understand all of the defensive reasons why they don't want to do this. Because those are my reasons too. Like I'm also too busy. I also don't like being in messy organizations. I also get bored or antsy at meetings.
0: It's skeptical that what little impact you can have is worth it.
1: Right. So uh, so the the first person part of the book, which is, you know, really only a chapter or two of the book, is I think for me a vehicle of of communicating I know your excuses because they're my excuses too and like get over yourself. <laughs>
0: I mean, what would you say you've learned from in particular your own efforts to do this kind of organizing?
1: So, what one thing I've learned and this is something that is a theme of one chapter of the book. I've learned actually there's a lot of similarities between being involved in a, a religious community and being involved in a political one, which is that when you show up in person and you have a regular interactions with people in your neighborhood, you have a much more fulfilling experience actually than if you are engaged in a shallow form of politics or, you know, for in the religious parallel, like better than a meditation iPhone app is like having a community of people that depend on each other. Now, I better understand that in politics, there is a really similar thing happening, which is that a lot of people not only feel disempowered from the couch, but they feel like lonely and there's downtimes and they feel like dejected when their candidate doesn't become the nominee and whatever. There's a lot of reasons to be upset. But the routine of showing up to a meeting once a month or once a week and having people depend on you is like not only I think more effective obviously, but also like deeply gratifying relative to the shallow forms of hobbyism.
0: I think that you contrasted persistent melancholy with deep joy in the the difference between participation and hobbyism. And and that might be a, a real lesson to a lot of people who I talk to, so many people who are so down about Trump and so much vibrating to his every misbehavior but are not getting out there and doing anything that builds power for the opposition.
1: Yeah. Let me say one more thing, which is that a political scientists and I think kind of like a national politics observers think about the role of an individual as like minuscule. Like, you know, is it even rational to vote? Because, you know, you're only one out of so many millions of voters and you're never going to make a difference. And I've completely reoriented my feelings about that role to what i think the organizers all think which is like okay i start with my own vote i have one vote that i'm entitled to how many more can i control or influence and so it's not like i'm one tiny drop in the bucket in a national scene but like like the fact that i see that 98 year old guy in brighton nah who controls a thousand votes i think holy whatever i can't believe that guy controls a thousand votes like i i think i want to control like a thousand votes i think that's awesome i think that there are people who have a thousand times the voting power that i have because they're basically have done years of good deeds for people and been engaged in their communities and that is a like a much better frame of reference which is like how many votes can you influence versus yourself compared to like the standard frame of reference, which is like, I, I'm so small in this. My role is minuscule in you know, a national election.
0: If someone comes to you and says, well, then what should I do? What do you direct them towards?
1: So I direct them toward first building a cell. So I think, you know, finding a friend or two who's going to go in on this with you, because I think it's, it's very hard to, to do this completely by yourself. And when you have that friend and basically, you know, you look around and where where you could fit in, you know, sometimes it's a civic organization. It could be, you know, you know, a nonprofit. It could be a group that's focused on some issue, you know, immigrant rights or whatever, or it could be a party committee. And it takes time to invest in that and to realize that some of these things are run by cliques of people who have known each other for decades. It's going to take time. But I think a weekly... In-person meeting is kind of the goal. I mean, for a lot of people, I think a lot of hobbyists looked at real activists with some disdain, like, I would never want to do what they do. I want readers to see that those people aren't crazy. I took students over the summer to a zoning board meeting. We encountered a zoning board regular. This woman, she's maybe about 50 years old, and we kind of quickly learned that she shows up once a week to the zoning board meeting, which is like three or four hours at night, once a week. She's kind of a thorn in the side of the whole operation. She's really antagonistic to developers, but they all know her and she knows like all of the rules now. Um, so she <laughs> she intervenes when she wants to. At one moment, we saw one of the developers stand up and I forget what the woman's name Say so It was like Susan. And the developer said, you know, I'd like to make an announcement. I agree with Susan on this. And everyone laughed because... They were all kind of in it, in this world where she's normally the antagonist, but like in this case, they agreed. And I think, I really think this, that most of people that I would call a hobbyist would look at someone like Susan and say like, what's the matter with her? What a weird way to spend an evening of your life every week. And I want people to say, oh, wait a minute, maybe I'm the weird one who is like, Instead of once a week doing something like that, learning civic skills, learning how to get what you want from government, like learning the connection between zoning and housing and the environment and all that. Instead, I'm like binge watching Netflix, like really, who's the crazy person here? Or binge
0: watching MSNBC or CNN or sitting there on Facebook and, and writing a polemic of some sort.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. so I I guess I want people to see someone like that and be like, oh, that's actually really interesting. Not only is that like useful for her, because you know no one's at these zoning board meetings. She has a lot more power than you might expect from a solo citizen, because like <laughs> she knows more and is there. So she actually has a role here, and it's so much more interesting, really than, than what we're doing at home. Part of the story here is that like, it doesn't take that many people to, you know, you build, you do it yourself with a few other people, you get involved in some way. And I think it's more interesting and like you said, more joyful and just way better than, than, you know, MSNBC.
0: So I think a lot of people that are following politics closely and highly educated, are vibrating right now to the ups and downs of the Democratic primary polling and candidates coming in and out. How do you connect what you're writing about to this ongoing process?
1: I think it's just like one endless distraction over the other. I mean, how many Democrats were so worked up and put all their hope into the Mueller report? And then more or less the second it was over, they're like, okay, cool. Like, what's the next thing? Oh, the Ukraine thing? Great. We'll focus on that now. And the primary. And like all of these little tiny stories that last a day or two. Sharpie gate. And then like, go away. Like, it's just a, a total distraction. When I think about politics, I really think about the, the downtimes for a side where like there's no exciting news, but things still have to happen. For the Democrats, who can remember back to the emotional highs of the Obama election, That was easy. It was in 2010 when the energy was down and Democrats couldn't be bothered anymore to support congressional candidates, to support members of Congress who were taking hard votes on health care. And those are the moments that durable organizations can sustain energy in. And I think focusing on the ups and downs of national drama is just a total distraction.
0: In the age of Trump... You have the sort of, I don't know, the the all-time master of distraction, right? How do you advise people to to be effective in politics when that's going on?
1: Yeah, I mean, mostly by ignoring it. And you ignore it because when you're in a real-world political community or civic community, people are depending on you. No one is depending on you to follow a congressional impeachment hearing. No one is depending on you to offer a hot take on Facebook. You can leave that and no one's going to miss it. You shouldn't be sad about that. It's just that the relationships we have online are not serious enough that anyone's really going to miss your hot takes. But if you are a member of a community that has goals and strategies, then people are depending on you. I think when you can fill your time with serving community, then you don't care about whatever the insane and mostly stupid news story is of the day.
0: If you could compose the question to yourself about your book that you'd like to answer, what would it be?
1: What am I supposed to do?
0: That is the, the key question. And I've somewhat asked that, but you want to try take another swing at it? <laughs>
1: <laughs> There's two questions in the book, right? It's, it's what am I doing now? And is that what I want to be doing? And so... I think half the book is the date.
0: It's, a, I mean, it's kind of an addiction, right? I think it is for me, the kind of relentless followings of the ups and downs. It's the soap opera that you keep returning to. So how do you break that?
1: Yeah, I don't, I mean, I, I guess you just have to start. <laughs> it's not I, like, you know, I don't know. I, I don't I, I I, mean,
0: I guess it's like replacing one habit with another, but, you know, if you can go join your, I don't know, local indivisible group or local Democratic Party precinct committee or whatever, then you're spending your time in another fashion.
1: Yeah. And in such a richer fashion, I was recently at a, at a bar after I put my kids to bed, uh, I went out. With a group of a couple people my age, and then this one older guy who is recently retired, and he's kind of a, an expert on affordable housing. He's an attorney, and we asked the younger group asked to meet with him to kind of like get his perspective on a bunch of local affordable housing stuff. At the the meeting, we said, oh, thank you so much for taking the time to to meet with us. And he's like, are you kidding? Like, you know, it's such a pleasure to be seen in public with young people. And it was like sort of a funny joke. It was great. You know, of course, it was like a great night at a bar where we learned about affordable housing from someone who knew about it. And it was a pleasure for him too. And I think like just the more that you can be out there in person meetings with people, the more that the stuff online just seems so, so shallow. Again, it's not because it's not important what's happening in Washington. It, it is important. It's just that, like, my role as a citizen in that stuff is really not important. But my role here is important. Like, I know that I can have a role in my own community that translates into something bigger.
0: At the end of the day, Your book is a book by a political scientist, and you reference studies and other thinkers in the area. Who do you think are people that you read along the way or you're familiar with their work that someone who's interested in this area should know about?
1: So the book is really influenced a lot by Laura Putnam, who is a professor of history at Pitt.
0: And a former guest on the show.
1: Yeah, so Laura really influence a lot of the book, mostly by like helping me see and find the opposite of hobbyism and understand that, what it means to be really engaged and, and why people do it. And 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 so she gets a lot of credit for that. You know, I think there's a lot of work in political psychology about why people do the kind of online rage stuff that they do. You know, Yana uh, Krupnikov at Stony Brook has been a very influential uh, scholar for me and of course, the scholars of political organizing, you know, Hari Han, Marshall Gans, David Brockman, folks who have done some really great scholarly work connecting organizers to academics. But, you know, again, there's both sides of this, right? The psychologists are really mostly f- helping me understand the hobbyism. So are people like Nolan McCarty at Princeton, Marcus Pryor also at Princeton, folks who are really like, what are people doing when they're interested in politics? What does that mean to be interested in politics? And then, you know, then the other group is mostly like, you know, what are the organizers like?
0: Have you taught this to undergraduates, this general thing as yeah, In part of classes, what, what kind of reaction do you get from them?
1: They really identify with it. They identify with hobbyism as a problem. And I think they're receptive to it. I think that for college students, and honestly for people in their 20s too, who are pretty transient and not settled into married life or life with kids, they're not homeowners, you know. They feel not as connected to communities. And many of them, particularly on the left, are not part of religious communities. So they don't have kind of regular community meetings of any kind. And I think that they feel that that is actually missing for them. Of course, I do f- talk to audiences and, you know, encounter defensiveness of this behavior. Everyone's looking for like, can I justify my own behavior? <laughs> and <laughs> Definitely. one strange thing that happens in audiences I found is in audiences where 90% of the people are white and 10% are non white, I talk about hobbyism as a kind of a, a result of people having low stakes in politics and why minorities, you know, African Americans have much higher rates of actual like organizational participation. And there's lots of reasons for that. They have a real fear and a sense of linked fate with people who are very affected by government policy. And so they, they want to actually engage in communities. I've seen African-American, Latino members of audiences nod their heads. And then you know <laughs> the larger sea of white audience members are like, uh, is this what I'm doing? But I think the students and the younger audience in particular recognize this as I do this because I am not deep in a community and maybe I wish I was.
0: What are you working on right now? What's your current research?
1: Well, I just finished this.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Um, So you got some time to promote it and talk about it.
1: It wasn't an easy choice for me to try to write a book for a, a general audience. This is, you know, not an academic book. There are no tables and graphs in it. It's a real departure from, in that regard, from my other stuff. And I try to communicate both the kind of cutting edge of political science on political behavior with also, obviously, a strong normative argument that like, hey, we're doing this wrong and uh, we should do it differently. So I, I definitely want to get that message out. The next project that's a, a bigger project, I mean, I continue kind of with my regular work, but I I, I might do a, a version of this book or a version 2.0 might be focused on the on the role of businesses in community engagement.
0: Sounds interesting. It does seem like you found your niche, uh, and that's always pretty good to hear from anyone who has. Aiton, it's been an honor to talk to you today. Anything else you want to say?
1: No, thanks for having me. And, um, you know, thanks for highlighting all these great voices of, of, of people who are like, you know, in the trenches.
0: Yeah. One of the things that I really think that you do in your book and that I like it when I get a chance to is to kind of honor those people who really are having an impact and are affecting lots of people and are kind of putting their time and body on the line. It's really inspiring to me.
1: Cool. Well, thanks again for having me.
0: Thanks. Bye. That was Aton Hirsch at Tufts University. I recommend you read Aton's book and get out there and help build power for progressives. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with The Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at resistancedashboard.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.